Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in IndyCar last chance question, LCQ episode. What is this? Tried it last week. Or was it the week before? I don't remember. Uh, get a lot of great questions every week, 30, 40, 50 plus on average. Can't get to all of them. I ask our friend Jerry Suddeth, longstanding listener and now helper for about a year or so of putting together the questions for me each week. There's the red line of death. And below that red line are many fine questions. And so since we're here in the off season, not a whole lot going on with IndyCar to talk about, figured, hey, you know what? Why don't we put together some of those questions below that red line, put them into an LCQ episode and try and do that here during the off season. So try and go for about a half hour or so. These aren't meant to be super long. We'll do our regular Week in IndyCar listener Q&A here, I think Tuesday or so. We'll try and get that done and posted. But going to knock out LCQ here and say a big thank you as always to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Going to kick things off here. Daniel Summersgill. Says disappointed to hear that Dalton Kellett has left the Foyt team. Do you see any prospect of him returning to IndyCar in the future, even it's if it's just for the Indy 500? Or has that ship sailed with the few spaces available next season? Say where does his future lie? Could IMSA be a possibility? Spoke with Dalton, I think the morning of his announcement that he was not returning. And I need to get that interview done because it does spell all this stuff out. Happy to share it here, Daniel. And I will be very, very surprised if I hear about Dalton doing anything more in terms of driving in professional series beyond, say, some bucket list items. Is that Sebring, Petit Le Mans, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, Daytona, He's done some of these events for sure, right? Had success. Granted, back when we had like two or three cars entered on average in LMP2 and IMSA, he was able to uh, have some success there, win some races. But he's by no means new to sports car racing. But in our conversation, I did not hear anything, nor did he indicate that he is rushing to get back into a car, the car, or any car from a top-line competitive standpoint, or even amateur level. I don't know. Should I say anytime soon? Uh, anytime-ish? Uh, I hope we don't lose him. Really do like the guy, and it's always awesome to see someone living their dream as he has been doing. I don't see him getting back into IndyCar. I mean, I, I wonder if that is a chapter he has closed for himself. We know that from the success of his family, there's certainly enough money for him to continue competing in IndyCar full-time, part-time, you name it. I just don't know if that's something he wants for himself anymore or if he would just rather shift his attention to life after racing. Getting married here soon, sure he would know he would like to start a family, Got business side that he, the family business side that he really wants to dive into. Obviously, we're going to wait and see. He could very well change his mind and say, hey, maybe Indy 500 might be a bit hard, uh, but I would say there's a possibility 
uh, of a seat or two he might be able to step into if he wanted to do that. But could it be a third car at Toronto with team A, B, or C? Possibly. You know, pit lane there's a little bit compromised for adding extra cars, but could he try and do something for his home race? Or Mo Sport, a.k.a. Canadian Tire Motorsports Park in IMSA. I mean, I did not get a feeling, Daniel, that he is itching to continue doing that. He did mention, again, some bucket list type stuff he might want to do. But if we were to learn that he's just taking a totally different direction in life, I would not be surprised whatsoever. Uh, Tim Falkowitz, speaking of friends, putting together the Q&A list. Tim, uh, Tim was P1. Uh, in doing that for us so thankful again tim for you uh starting that off for us a couple years ago so hey marshall you mentioned on the uh, morals podcast that would be uh, sarah and jeremiah uh, on the morals podcast that you spent some time on a land speed record team what was your role in that project and any good stories from that time oh yes uh i could probably go on here all day tim but I'll, i'll keep that somewhat tight and limited i was asked to head out to the black rock desert in nevada for the final uh spirit of america land speed record attempt that being craig the amazing iconic craig Breedlove, going up against uh thrust ssc this was i believe around this time uh october-ish maybe november of 1997 and they had put a lot of data uh, acquisition bits and pieces on the uh, Spirit of America and were having some real issues. They had a young person there who I think might have been part of the team to start. I don't know. I don't think they brought him in to do that. But regardless, uh, I, to be honest, I didn't really ask. But uh, they had a lot of instrumentation, instrumentation on the car. They're having some issues with the car, uh, the vehicle, of it lifting up in flight and some other things too when you're going five, six, seven hundred miles an hour. Uh, yeah, some funny forces can be at play. Plus, if you have a little bit of wind in whatever direction, that can kind of monkey up your, uh, your life. So they were admittedly struggling with the person they had to look after the uh, data system and help with some of the input from that to feed uh from an engineering standpoint and so they brought me out and i did that for i don't remember the exact duration it feels it was a little bit less than two weeks i feel like it might have been about 10 days um we were kind of getting our butts kicked by thrust ssc uh and then yeah things did not end up going forward with the spirit of america program after that but um, so yeah, I was there basically to help on the kind of engineering ish side and help them help train the guy. It was pretty clear right away that, uh, that was going to be a much longer project than time allowed out on the desert. So I seem to recall stepping in a little bit and just trying to kind of sort of do that job as I could while not trying to totally marginalize the guy. Uh, because that was his actual job. I was just a guy coming in. But yeah, I mean, there's just some really amazing memories from that, Tim. Uh, Being out at the end of the run was insane. 
So I believe, yeah, we were like seven miles down the road. So there was like a one mile ramp up, a five mile reach maximum speed measurement zone, and then a one mile ramp down section. And so it was just <laughs> having, granted, I'm like 26 at the time, 27, whatever I was. Uh, I'd still spent most of my life in racing since I was about 16, uh, doing all kinds of stuff. None of them involved piling into a Ford pickup truck with uh, the, the, I think, crew chief, uh, the engineer, John Aykroyd, the designer and kind of overall engineer, and the rest of the support crew. And firing down this crazy crazy long stretch again like truly seven miles down the road uh, a seven mile drag strip effectively and so firing down to the end of that to wait because with all the uh service items and everything needed to uh, turn the vehicle around and run the opposite direction if things went well because you need to get time going both ways i believe but anyways um Seeing that for the first time, Tim, of, you know, we have all the radio communications going on and, you know, teeing things up and getting ready and a countdown for him taking off. But we're so far away to where you can't see any of this. Plus, among the many crazy things, out on that Black Rock Desert, and there are certainly a few places on Earth where this is possible, you could see the curvature of the Earth. Looking back to where our, our base camp was, uh, being out at the very end of where Breed Love is supposed to end up, looking back and not seeing things flat, but seeing curvature, uh, that was just mind-boggling. And then when he lit the thing off, right, just huge amounts of dust and dirt and everything kicked up in the air, that's the only way we knew that you know things were rolling from a visual standpoint other than you know being told over the radio and then just seeing that rolling thing of dust and whatever hiking up into the air get bigger and bigger and closer and closer uh, and hearing the sound even though you know he's a couple miles away of just the force of the jet engine oh my goodness that was crazy walking like driving up and you know seeing i don't remember what speed top speed we did you know might probably 500 miles an hour something like that so well clear of a record but even so just seeing a human being uh, in this little cockpit and craig's not that big of a guy either but seeing him in there with the the hatch flipped up and like hi craig and you know hi human you just did 500 plus miles an hour on land is just a very surreal thing um huge sandstorm out there as well i know i got a photo or two of that where beautiful blue skies and you can again see the curvature of the earth everything's perfect and whatever and then the next minute like uh you are being assaulted by the air can't see anything and it's trying to blow you over and everything's getting thrown around that was crazy the aforementioned lifting uh of one side of the vehicle while running um the the kind of beam wings that mounted and, and housed the uh the rear wheels uh, central front wheel and then two out back um trying to help there trying to think of ways to create some some downforce uh they listened to me and I, as i suggested mounting fabricating and mounting some gurney flaps 
to try and actually, I know we're trying to cut through the air and be super fast like a missile, but if the thing's not stable, you're never going to get there. So we tried that, didn't seem to do much. Uh, the crew chief guy, uh, whose name I'm, I'm forgetting for a moment, Tim, he had fun uh, clap barking at me. He, from the outset, uh, uh, you know, whatever works in your world of indie cars and going to work out here uh, idiot who knows nothing and i'm like okay i hear you but like you have a wing-shaped fairing that you've placed over the outrigger for the rear wheels and so if one side is lifting up routinely i don't know i'm just trying to think of something that would actually help pull it down so anyways uh yeah i think it helped a tiny bit but not as much as hoped so he gave me a lot of grief for that but it was just an amazing thing, man. Honestly, if I do ever get to writing something about this wacky life I've lived, there will be a chapter in there about my uh, flirtation with land speed record stuff uh, with the man, <laughs> Craig Breedlove. Uh, and I have some photos, too, that I recently found where I brought my little A-Team van, which for whatever reason I brought with me a lot to races back then, that had Mr. T in it. Um, and, yeah, well... Uh, having everything posed for photos taken by the legendary Pete Brock. Uh, I got one of them with my A-Team van in front of the Spirit of America. And I think while holding it, uh, while posing maybe with Craig Breedlove. So yeah, uh, a little peculiar there. I'll go ahead and readily admit that. Uh, where do we go next here? Uh, Todd Hudson. I want to come back to the Dalton Kellett angle. Uh, you say if MP, or you say MP, if Dalton decided... He wanted to take time away from driving. Do you believe there would be several teams interested in working uh, with him in an engineering role? You say hashtag me personally, an engineer with high-level driving experience might provide a different insight than a traditional engineer. Um, you would be surprised, Todd, uh, the number of IndyCar and, heck, even IMSA, but IndyCar race engineers who have decent to very, very decent uh, open-wheel racing experience. So might have been more limited to the junior levels. But yeah, that that's not uncommon. Someone like Dalton, he what his degree, I believe, is in engineering physics. And he obviously has worked with decent race engineers the last couple of years. I would not, though, make the mistake in thinking that he would be ready to step on to a IndyCar timing stand in anything less than a couple years from now. Uh, he has no experience being a race engineer. And so, like the other race engineers uh, on pit lane who have quality open-wheel experience, uh, very few, if any of them, jump straight into this role. They spent time, if not many years, if not many, many years on junior open wheel ladder level, learning at the lower rungs and working their, their way up before establishing themselves through their success with drivers, teams, whatever, wherever they might be, establishing their skills as race engineers before an IndyCar team would have the least bit of interest in them so the fact that dalton has driven indy cars it's great that would not be something that i can think of where any team 
would think of him as a race engineering solution, assistant race engineering solution. I can't think of one. And again, I, I could be wrong, but I can't think of one that would uh, make an approach. Mostly it would be go and learn because there's so much to learn that he's never had to do, never had to understand. Um, go do that junior open wheel and then let's talk. Um, Nick, SRT Nick 12, you ask a question that is kind of time honored in motor racing and it's not limited to IndyCar, but we will go through it here. Say, uh, hey, I appreciate you doing the pod, the podcast in the off season. Of course, do them all season, brother. Uh, a couple of questions. What do employees of teams do in the off season? Uh, well, a lot of stuff. If you think about the time it takes to not only prep and service the cars, they will tend to go out and do at least one or two tests as well. That involves preparation, cleaning, and getting those things turned around as well full servicing of the vehicles to prepare them for the next season all of the equipment right whether it is refueling tanks to timing stands to transporters to uh toolboxes like this is the time of the year where teams which didn't have the time to really go through everything in a super crazy in-depth way during the season this is where everything gets freshened. This is where everything gets renewed. This is where all major services get done. Transporter needs, whether it's oil change or tires or a rebuild of this, the air conditioning unit on the transporter could need that. The hydraulic lift needs refurbishment. I mean, just you run down the list and it's, it's pretty insane. Uh, you'll see a lot of training going on, right? Inevitably, you'll either have new-ish Folks coming in, whether it's on the shop floor, um, communications department, or wherever, uh, who need to learn the way of the team uh, or the way of their job if they're somewhat young in that role. You could have a veteran come over from another team, and you go, cool, you might know everything and be amazing. We probably do a couple things a little bit different here, so let's go through that. Um, it's not hard to fill your, your days a lot of planning, a lot of going back and looking at what you did and how you could do things better. Um, you'd also hope uh, some teams could also have their uh, their crews on somewhat lighter days. And I don't mean every day, but do people cut out at a reasonable hour uh, on Fridays to extend their weekends? I'd hope so. You then have another thing too, Nick, where many IndyCar teams have at least one other team competing in something those seasons might extend beyond the IndyCar season. So not uncommon, whether it's mechanics, uh, folks who might be on a timing stand, whatever to get out and go to some of those races and help, uh, their crews testing with some of those, uh, other teams, right? I think of the Ray Hall team, Penske team, uh, Ganassi shank. I might be forgetting someone else, but, They've all got new or, or significantly uh, upgraded sports car deals going on next year. Could that be a place where you pull over some resources? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's not uncommon by the time you get to December, middle of December, where you're like, okay, <laughs> I've polished everything that I can five times over, and there's not a ton more. So you know, keep in mind that with what tends to be the grind 
of working in any major racing series, you know it's going to be the same nasty grind once things pick up when the new season, new year gets here. It's never a bad thing to say, hey, uh, I'm sure we could have you uh, here until 5 o'clock, but you know, I'm going to be very, very mad if all of you on the shop floor in particular uh, aren't eating lunch at home and I'll see you next Monday or next Tuesday. Um, this is where hopefully some of the rewards come in for all the hard work that gets put in. Uh, let's see. Emerson D'Agostino. Uh, here we go. You say a uh, driven question and rant. You say after six days of COVID sickness and isolation, I realized while watching jet ski slaloms that there was no racing left to watch, but the movie driven. Oh, I love you. Uh, Emerson say lots of emotional suffering if if i wasn't already a racing fan driven would have taught me long ago that toronto has gravel traps great point uh indy lights and atlanta cars are eligible to compete in the fedex cart fedex world series very true uh gateway was visited no less than 17 times in one season uh yep uh you might have missed the 18th but yep uh, outboard starters are optional. Very true. It's a bit of a hidden thing, but, you know, uh, I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, the Bell Isle start-finish straight is approximately the same length as I-75. Also true. Um, uh, and you also mentioned why were Jean Alessi and Jacques Villeneuve included as drivers in this film. Neither were remotely competing in cart at the time. Uh, even though viewing was free, I still want my money back. I love it. And, and you didn't uh, mention one of my favorite parts of Michael Andretti uh, being flipped into the water at Belle Isle slash uh, Circuit Gilles Villeneuve in Montreal, uh, but then also competing just a few seconds later in the very same race. So, yes, uh, the life aquatic Michael Andretti, another fine aspect of the movie Driven. I'm glad. Uh, that it didn't oh, sorry dad joke here drive you off um caleb whistler all right caleb you're 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 trying to start trouble here uh you say with amazon using nielsen as a third-party verification of its viewership numbers for thursday night football are there talks from indycar and its stakeholders to get third-party verification of viewership numbers on peacock uh I have no idea, Caleb. Um, I don't know if those are things they fully want verified. Here's a little bit of background. So on a weekly basis, at least while we have motor racing happen to generate Nielsen ratings, um, fine folks at Racer have for many years put together again a weekly tv ratings story i think they go to one site um is it like show buzz daily or something like that i forget the exact i've been to that site many times just not in a long time so i don't remember the url but i believe they go there and that outlet pays money to nielsen to access and then publish ratings and it'll do it for all kinds of stuff regular tv they'll segment it off and do the weekend in sports ratings and that kind of stuff and that's where to my knowledge most of the ratings in our world of racing are captured 
I know that there was an outreach not so long ago. This is while the IndyCar season was, uh, I think it was still going on. Maybe it was just after, but there was an outreach of sorts basically saying, hey, um, saw one of these posts and there's an inaccurate number for one of the races. And I remember the race, but I'll, there's no need to include that. Um, and then there were some questions of like, hey, curious, by the way, where you get your numbers from? how the question was conveyed implied more or less like, Hey dummies, uh, looks like you're just welcome. Welcome. Uh, the idea of, of using any old numbers bad, could be bad numbers, but you know, there, there's some questions about the, the authenticity of the numbers you're getting or the accuracy and you know, what's up with that. Uh, they're readily available, uh, often presented by, um, uh, NBC, NBC Sports, sent out in email blasts or otherwise for you to draw from. So, you know, very long story short, these things are just sitting in your inbox. Why don't you just use those instead of whatever incorrect number that you have? And through that discussion, Caleb, came a couple of truths. Uh, not everything that IndyCar sees in terms of ratings that they're provided with uh, is provided to the rest of the world. And in many cases, and keep in mind that I'm just truly doing a volley back and forth of emails from the series to the person who puts together those stories for Racer. And that person's response is back to IndyCar and then IndyCar's back to him. And so I was just kind of the, the message middle person. <laughs> um, but the thing that was very clear uh, of the couple things was y'all get like overnights and here's the early number that, and then that'll be confirmed tomorrow. And based on this, we think it's that and like you get a whole bunch of info that we don't, uh, second one thing like, Hey, if there's a great rating and percentages are up at here and there says NBC sports through its communications department. Awesome. And hey, on the topic of Peacock, um, if the numbers weren't great at here or there, uh, guess what emails don't get sent out? The ones saying, yeah, that wasn't great. And so there's often an informational void direct from the broadcaster where folks need to then go and try and find answers on their own. So yeah, a little bit of a weird touchy thing, Caleb, where I know... It's not uncommon, whether it's IndyCar, IMSA, wherever, if they have a down number, uh, they tend not to rush to put that out slash don't put that out at all. And if it was a long race, IMSA's coming to mind here, like the Rolex 24, 12 hours of Sebring, and maybe the overall average number is down or is just not something that is great and you'd really want to promote, they're going to cherry pick. Hey, in the opening hour, while this race was on big network, we had a great number. Just don't ask us what was going on during the seventh hour or whatever, when we were on Peacock or wherever it might be. And again, I'm not limiting this to NBC and Peacock. It's been a practice for many years on whatever host TV broadcaster or streaming service. That's just kind of the norm, man, of, uh, 
if you got something in there that's good promote that but absolutely do not talk about the bad and if you got bad and it's just bad uh no need to send that information out so uh there we go all right so i am at the red line created by our pal jerry sudeth so you got a couple minutes left so why don't i scroll down here ed joris <laughs> you're killing me here uh when do we expect an announcement about another year-long delay for the hybrid power plants uh, i hope not uh i hope not um our pal atlantic cat 99 uh you sent this in i think i covered this off in last week's main episode so to you i apologize you're asking about what was the idea behind the name change uh getting rid of the road to indy anderson promotions shifting things to just usf championships uh, and whatnot i believe i covered that off in last week's main episode so you can probably get that there um sean price uh, why don't we go with your question as a closer uh let, oh jeremiah s-c-h-n uh hey mp hope you are well can you give any give me any insight if jamie chadwick will be in indy lights next year uh everything i've heard is yes she will so uh that's what i'm expecting at least um lance snyder you got a question about wrestling here uh send that one in again if you want to uh sean you say is there a feasible way that the current indycar chassis could continue racing an indycar after the debut of the next chassis to ease the financial burden for teams that aren't as financially stable could they sure um by the time we get to 26, 27, 28, whatever year it is when we're going to get to a new chassis, I mean, we should have a new chassis right now, my friend. Folks know for a fact that there is one coming. Folks know that it is something they should start saving for. I realize that there are financial haves in the series and those by comparison who are financial have-nots, but buying new cars is not some sort of epic oh my god uh, are we gonna kill our business if we have to buy them i know things are tight and i know that nobody wants to do that right now i realize we hear all the are we headed towards a financial depression or this or i get all that this is not the be-all end-all nor should it be treated as such salaries for drivers keep going up for example drivers are certainly immensely valuable they should be well paid no arguments from here in that front but from some of the salary bumps that i've heard of the teams are willingly paying some of the better drivers now very recently a lot of these bumps like yeah you could afford to buy a couple cars for what you're now committing extra dollars to in the driver front when the money's needed it can be found. This is not something where for most teams, it should be a showstopper. So there's no question to me at all as to whether teams can absorb the price of new cars. I understand that with the hybrid engines that are meant to be coming and the higher costs and all the new parts and pieces they're going to have to pay for that go with it in 2024 that, yeah, um, you might want to give them a year, maybe two, to get settled in there. But, I mean, if we don't have a new car by 26, why bother? 
we're going to head into the 12th year of the DW12 in 2023. I mean, we're not going to be too far away from a quinceanera or whatever. Uh, yeah, bat mitzvah, bar mitzvahs, uh, just coming of age, like the DW12 be in high school age-wise um, by then. Like, <laughs> to quote the great Charles Barkley, I don't know if the great works, but I like saying it. Come on, man. Uh, it's time. So, yeah, no need to, Sean. Zero need to do so. Um, all the money teams spend, on, all the things teams spend money on, this is one where with more than a couple of years to prepare for this, um, it can be done. Uh, no questions whatsoever. All right. This is our uh, second edition of the LCQ. I appreciate all of y'all. Thank you for sending in the questions. And for those of you whose questions I might've read for the first time or second time, keep sending them in. Uh, there's hope for the ones that don't make the red line of death. Uh, and so, yeah, we'll keep doing the LCQ during the off season here and time permitting, try and do them Fridays, maybe Mondays like I'm doing now and uh, get that done ahead of the main show. All right. Thanks again to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. I'll speak to you here soon.